When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. Headlights blasted through the night, billboards like whores hovering on the side of the road, lamps dripping with the oil of cosmopolitan life brought brown morning fog into view, which bled into the immediate vespers of outlying rows of weeping wine fields, a crucified farmer shadowed against a shriveled barn. Semis heaved by perpetually, smothering the ground and choking the air, into eternity moving, moving, over the yellow land and through the suburbs, round behind the gas house and into the damp washing bays, lunching with the fishmen at noon and dying with a roadside restaurant at dark. Talk of a hard life, a hard life. My wife's been alone for a month now, and so have I they move on. And in a strange geometry of disintegration, runaways fired their final rocks from a fractured overpass, and hitchhikers with lanterns paced till there was no light left. Now that is a poem that I, that is the first part of a poem I wrote just after I turned 17, uh, I will not give the date. Um, it's wonderful to read that. That is uh, almost the sound of my first voice. If you can uh, dig up a poet's voice and find its first real expression, I think for me that might be it. There are some earlier ones uh, that I could also read that uh, are sort of a, a weird jumble. Uh, no real stories or images, but just a jumble of sounds. Uh, but that's the first real attempt that I made, or the first real successful attempt that, that I made of describing living, uh, going to high school in rural Ohio, uh, driving on the freeways, uh, with the billboards, with the wine fields on the sides of the freeway, and the uh, the truck stop restaurants. I and and back then I, there there was a, a lot of stories in the news of of and I think probably from the, that Macaulay Culkin movie as well, The Good Son, 
where uh, of kids throwing rocks or even larger things over the freeway overpasses and causing accidents. It's very strange to read that. Uh, I haven't shared very much of my own poetry here for a very good reason, but those out there who have read my poetry since then um, might even say I should have stayed on this tack. I sort of think that in the moment right now reading this, um, sort of a mixture of of what I actually saw with the surreal, the crucified farmer shadowed against a shriveled barn. But I bring it up because in doing the uh, episodes about Whitman, which from the reaction I've gotten seems to be compelling enough to continue doing, it's worth taking the experiment even further. Um, I don't think I'm Whitman. I don't think I'm uh, on the level of many of the people that I read here. But for a, a sense of one's own story, uh, for a sense of just basic spiritual health or being practical uh, in the way of uh, in the way that I've heard of of how uh, the journal or the diary of Europeans seem to rise out of uh, a sort of Protestant ethic or paranoia of of keeping track of your own life and your own thoughts to see where God might be in your life and where God might not be in your life, that kind of thing. I think it is worthwhile, just as I have been sticking to the bias of what uh, is passionate to me, what, where I find my passion of where to do these episodes, of, of not... See, see, of not seeing a reason to try to please everybody all the time. Um, in the same way, it seems worthwhile to just try to figure out where your where your own center came from. As uh, Peter Zweig has put it, he is trying to figure out where Walt Whitman's long foreground came from. And I don't think it's a terrible thing every now and then for each one of us to wonder where our foreground came from. And so the poem that I just started to read from goes on for, let's see, from page 7 to page 22, so a good 15 pages. So it goes on for, for a while longer. And it's in a tiny little book that I published a few months later um, when I was a freshman in college. And I still remember setting the book up in Microsoft Word and finding a printer down the street from the college I was at. And coming back to college that morning, I think it was a Saturday morning, it says it's in March. First printing in March of a year that I won't give. And uh, and just sort of uh, passing them around. And I'm wondering where the courage came to do that. But also, 
more the stubbornness as well. Because I remember also very soon after the book, very soon after I had the book printed, uh, I approached the college, the uh, student committee of whatever name, I can't remember what, the, what they call themselves, um, about doing a poetry series like this. And I brought a copy of uh, one of Lawrence Ferlinghetti's books, his pocket poem series. And I bought a copy of my own book to show that this was basically where my model was. And I can remember it clear as day. I was sitting in a, a fairly new college building for the 90s. And, and I'm someone who is not comfortable talking to groups, let alone to talking to crowds. But it, when it comes to poetry, that's completely different. And I was suddenly sitting there, surrounded by college students who were older than me and who I didn't really know. And I'm sure there was uh, someone on the administration there as well. Um, and I was describing what I wanted to do with this poetry series that I wanted to start with the college. And, I, and I'm pretty sure that I was asking them for it because I wanted them to finance at least part of it. And I was completely at ease at uh, speaking with them. And I passed around the Ferlinghetti book. And I remember, because the, the college that I went to for a year, a year and a few months, uh, was an equestrian college. And I remember they came to the poem of Ferlinghetti's uh, that ends, Horsemen Pass By. And I remember seeing one of them uh, pointing to that line and smiling and showing it to their friend. Um, I remember at some point one of the other students asking me, well, who is going to be the, who is going to be the judge of what gets published here, of which pamphlets get published, which books? And without blinking, I said, well, I will be. Um, it didn't seem to, uh, it didn't seem to be a question about that. And I don't know if I don't know what you would call that, stubbornness or arrogance or both. Um, I had only been in the college for a few months. I was a declared English major in the way that most people are declared English majors in colleges that aren't really known for their English programs. I hadn't sought out any other English majors or poets on campus. I hadn't sought out any English teachers, any of the English professors. There were a few good ones there. Uh, one of my lifelong friends taught history at this college, and I sought him out, but, but only by accident, because my brother had already had a class with him, and a decade before, my aunt, who I mentioned earlier in another episode, who gave me her copy of Gilgamesh back when, uh, she had had classes with this historian and writer, and she knew that the two of us would get along. Um, but I hadn't sought anyone out. I hadn't thought to connect with another teacher or another writer on campus. I hadn't thought to do any of that. And here I just wanted to start a series of books. And while the, the idea was quashed, I think pretty immediately, 
I wonder what would have happened if it had been approved. I was young enough to where uh, if I had been made, or if the suggestion had been made, well, you will work with one of the teachers, or you will work with one of the other campus writing groups, if there even was one. I never sought that out either. I never thought to look. Um, I wonder if I would have played nicely or not. Uh, and I just wonder where that where that comes from and how far back it was that I basically wanted to do these things by myself and on my own. I have discovered since then, because I was sure back when I was 17, 18, that it would only be a few years before uh, I wouldn't have to work a day job anymore. Um, somehow, someone like Seamus Heaney came to an awareness pretty quickly that a poet or a novelist, let alone a poet, uh, should definitely have a day job. Um, they shouldn't expect to suddenly find fame and fortune. But as a 17 and an 18-year-old, that is certainly what I expected to find. I didn't, I didn't even go to college for any good reason. What I ended up doing with uh, my senior year in high school, with all of the college uh, 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 applications and brochures that came to the house was I, I cut out the nice pictures of of uh, architecture of university architecture and I ended up doing a, a Sistine Chapel in my bedroom of just covering all available wall space with anything I could find which included the brochures from colleges and really the only reason that I went to college in the first place was because the college was about a half hour or 40 minutes from where I grew up along these same freeways. And because my brother was already there, so I would be, uh, we would be roommates. And I don't really know what the other reason was. I didn't, I didn't believe, and I still really don't, that in order to be a writer or a poet, you need to study in a college or university setting. I don't think that if you suddenly come to an interest in this or that writer, that you need to study that writer in college. It struck me again and again, thinking about it, that while I was introduced to somebody like T.S. Eliot in high school, what I was given was sort of a sort of a pinch there where I noticed it and then I ran off with it by myself. I never sought out to study about Eliot in college or in a class. And the same thing with somebody like uh, somebody like James Joyce um, or anybody you can find in the notes that Eliot made to the Wasteland. Uh, any of the Arthurian material, any of the uh, religious stuff, St. Augustine, the Upanishads, any of that, uh, uh, the Buddha's fire sermon, uh, the tarot cards, all of it, I never, or Shakespeare even, I never saw a reason to find it uh, anywhere except finding it on my own. And at first it could have been uh, 
simply a curiosity, a way of living with the curiosity that I naturally had. I'm naturally quiet and I don't make friends very well. And it seemed to me that reading and writing in high school were the most sincere and fulfilling things that I was doing. And I assumed, I seemed to assume at some point that it would lead to some kind of a practical living. Um, that has never come to fruition. And I think at some point what that morphed into uh, a natural curiosity of just trying to find my own way through things, through curiosity and passion, uh, I think it did lead in some way to a sense of being uh, almost anti-academic of how useless a college education might be for, for someone who is uh, who has a creative bent. So that I've sort of reacted completely the other way to it. But at first, I don't think it was even that. And I remember, I remember also back in high school, I wrote a lot of horror stories, a lot of, a lot of stuff inspired by Stephen King. And my mother went to a parent-teacher conference and asked an English teacher who was really influential and helpful to me back then. And she asked him, when is he going to give up these blood and guts stories? When is he going to stop writing such depressing stuff all the time? And I remember feeling offended that my teacher actually said, you know, well, give it some time, basically. I remember feeling offended by that. But again, it wasn't a reaction against uh, a formal setting. Writing and reading always seemed to be something else entirely. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't a way to meet girls, although that, that came into it eventually. It wasn't a way to appear smart. It wasn't a way, in other words, it wasn't a way to be the guy on the bus reading Pynchon and holding the book up uh, so everyone can see that he's reading Pynchon. It just seemed to be a completely natural thing to do or it seemed to be a great antidote even to whatever sense of loneliness I had back then in high school. It also helped that in the town that I went to high school, um, I had a friend named Paul. And from freshman year onwards, all we did was pass our writing back and forth to each other. And I'm sure, and, and Paul has said the same thing, What uh, even now, what, what are the chances that that the two of us would, would be, end up going to the same small town high school? It's completely bizarre. And if I think about that friendship now, it, it's also possible that Paul and I both found extremely strong and extremely prolific writers in their own high school class very early so that the idea of letting someone else into that circle who wasn't nearly as serious about it or back then uh, we certainly had confidence in ourselves uh, 
someone who wasn't nearly as good as us, uh, the idea of allowing someone into that circle was kind of a ridiculous notion. And so the stubbornness could have begun there, where it was just the two of us writing these stories and passing them back and forth. And slowly, as I went through high school, I did uh, end up doing things for the, like, the teen page on the paper, something like that. But I never sought anything wider out, either because I thought that my circle with Paul and, and maybe one or two others was enough, or that I didn't see a point in a circle at all, really. I don't know. Uh, it was very... It didn't take very long for the two of us to discover the sort of mythology behind the Beat Generation, where you would cross the country, crisscross the country, or end up in Denver or San Francisco or uh, back in Massachusetts or, or in Columbia, where, uh, where the Beats got going, or even uh, literary Paris with uh, Joyce and Hemingway and Sylvia Beach's bookshop. I don't know if I imagined that that would happen in suburban northeastern Ohio. I don't know if I imagined that maybe I would move maybe just to Cleveland to see if something like that could possibly happen. I don't know... Uh, it's also possible that that simply the the power of a strong, free-flowing imagination in a teenager who is lonesome and doesn't have many friends or many outlets outside of one or two other friends, it's possible that the experience of simply writing stories and and uh, early novels and things like that is so powerful, that there really is no thought as to what what to do with it when you're done with it. I, I always sought publication, but I don't know that I don't know that I ever had the sense of seeking what should go along with publication, which is essentially getting to know to somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody. It could be just a naturally impractical bent of a mind that is only good at the creative part and not very good at the marketing part. That is still the case with me now, uh, 22, 23, 24 years later. I am still caught up in the rush of writing a novel or a poem that... I still really have no idea what to do when it's done, except send it off to a few people that I know who can offer good criticism for it, or good comments, and then sending it off to get published. And when nobody takes it, or when parts of it might make it into a little magazine that I think might get a little bit of attention, I never really know what to do when that attention finally doesn't occur so that I don't I also don't really know what I meant to do when I started talking just now um, 
Let me try and read a little more of the poem and see if it brings something up. This is a description of one of the restaurants that, uh, or the, the poem version anyway, of one of the restaurants that we would go to. The waitress with running mascara eyes, the one with pencils like drunk arrows jutting from her Medusa extensioned hair, the one whose wedding dress is now this gray gown apron, the one whose diary, whose journal of dead days, is now some tissue-thin batch of blank patron checks, insubstantial even to catch her tears, the one with desperation embedded in her very stroll, in the lag of her legs and the pale pouting mask of muck and makeup. It is this waitress which approaches me. And she leans over me with a bloated anatomy, a sour perfume rising from her skin in visible tendrils, as a stench hovering like a rumor over a polluted pond. But she sets the slop down nicely, a dead eyeless dove in a bed of fall leaves, not exactly what I ordered, but too intriguing to refuse. So I sit and sip a muddy coke in an unwashed glass, and behold a bouquet of cloth flowers like old clothes on a forgotten line, fading away in a dusty windowsill. Outside the warped windows, a gang of naked children fight with abstract limbs over fake apples, plastic oranges, and wax grapes, and they look like shadows, their ash skin gray in the shade of a scattered alleyway. Back in the restaurant, stuffed in the corner, making whimper music on the cushions, a couple fornicates under a broken lamp, the old man across from me watching them intently, drooling ideograms into an ancient cup of decaf. And around a circular table, in the sudden pulse of conversation, like struggling light, philosophize five or so wandering teens who criticize the world in between cigarette rings. A demon then begins setting fire to the trash cans. A little shoplifter sneaks out with a handful of candy. And a lone woman, all half-naked by the door, winks with slut-lust at anyone with a wallet. Oh, I tell you, I fear her just as much as the rest, just as much as the pervert loitering in the bathroom, the communist ranting in the kitchen, and the homeless man with a fire sermon stationed in a hall by the vending machine. All of them, all of them grasping at individuality, trying desperately to distinguish themselves, to sever themselves from the insignificant, from the indifferent mass of men they together constitute. Those are pearls that were their eyes, yes, but they are now dim gems, dead gems. They look for meaning in the veins of a leaf, in the scattered bones of their elders, in a flame reflected in a smoky mirror. So that brings something to mind. Um, I still like a lot of this. I still, th I still think a lot of this is not, not too bad. But there is also just a young poet playing with sound and playing with imagery. 
And I'm sure that at the time I thought I was putting on my best T.S. Eliot and doing some some sort of surreal, dour stuff out of the wasteland. But I think it would have been worth trying to describe the restaurant as I actually saw it, rather than turning people into demons and such. Um, it's interesting that the, the one thing that I describe pretty accurately and pretty simply are the five or so wandering teens who criticize the world in between cigarette rings. That seems to be the, the clearest image that we have uh, of actual reality here. Uh, even, the, even the homeless that I may have come across in those restaurants is made into something uh, stranger than they really were. It's, it's so bizarre um, to think of the person who wrote this and the, the person who wrote it. I mentioned uh, a few episodes ago of going to freshman orientation at college and making sure that my copy of The Wasteland was in my coat pocket. Um, so these, this, this poem was started only a few months into, excuse me, a few months into my freshman year. And it's hard not to see this outpouring as being, um, something to do while I was bored at school or or just afraid at school. Um, there was a they had the the college that I went to had a wonderful new sort of building for the students to gather and I can remember writing a lot of this in one of those sort of open areas those open areas that many poets and creative types seem to sit at, the kind of areas that uh, in buildings, especially in colleges, that allow you to sit quietly to yourself, but also leave the option open that someone might walk by and start a conversation, just so long as it isn't you yourself starting the conversation, because that would be entirely too much. And I almost see this as sort of a defense against maybe being at school. Um, it wasn't really what I wanted to be doing, even though I had seemingly done it for no reason. And I'm still paying off at least some of that debt now. Or it may have, uh, the debt of that one year may have been paid off sometime last year. It's possible. I'm not really sure what I expected to happen, or I guess I am. I mentioned that I that I thought success would come quickly, but then what did I mean by success? I, I'm not sure. Did I, I? I had no idea about uh, uh, lecture circuits or going on uh, going on reading tours. It seems now that uh, the kind of confidence that I've continued with for the past 24 years or so in basic isolation 
it seems that if I can find an image for it now, it is simply the image of someone who is not terribly adept socially, who doesn't see a great value in outward social rituals, someone who has found a life and a way of being creative by mixing words together and telling stories and creating images. And it seems to be the story of perhaps a cynical young man who sees all around him, uh, what, what would you say, Salinger's, uh, um, Salinger's phony people everywhere. And that in this one place, writing these poems or reading the books that go into them, um, it almost seems as if this one sincere thing, this one apparently sincere thing that he can find to do, is all that he really wants to do. And shouldn't that be enough? Um, nowadays, that would be considered just on its own, an extremely privileged thing to say. Uh, a white kid from uh, from rural Ohio going to some college, at least, that he can live in, almost because he's not sure of what else he should do. Um, parents both married, uh, no issues with himself or anyone else that he knows that he's close to with drugs or alcohol or tragedy or anything of that kind. Uh, and and I, I wonder if that's where the, where the stubbornness came from. I guess I really haven't found my way back to that yet. How it was that I would dare to approach anyone to say, give me money. Excuse me. Give me money for a series of books that uh, I will put together myself and I don't need anyone's help. Um, it, maybe that's just the ruse of the person who doesn't want to know anyone else and who's afraid to know anyone else. I'm not sure. How long have I gone on here? A half hour. Okay. Maybe I can read a tiny bit more here. I'm sure someone will send me a message and say, you should have just read the whole poem instead of blathering on and on. Um, let me see how the, let me see how the very end of this poem sounds. Because uh, being 17, I had to end the poem with, um, with the apocalypse. A trail of breadcrumbs led me to this clearing. Savage earth, grassless ground, treeless root, sunless blasted landscape, suspended vine, a hanged man, an open cracked field of partial sprout, narrow growth, immediately exhausted energy spent in the wind, tossed voiceless into the metropolis, through the bare trees of suburbia and the gasping acres of the farmland. 
Finally back from whence it came, here Golgotha, place of the skull, place of palaver, with the wind, the layered wind, the ash in it inseparable from it, like a lung lined with the soot of ages, exhaled roughly in asthmatic bursts. And like elder thunder about to bring its final rain, its last storm, the wind, its scent thick with anticipation over the dead plain, leaves me a mountain of ash to rummage through. Oh, after all this time I realize that I am Prince Hamlet, only now pondering a million skulls, letting a million lives fall through my fingers like dust. And it is silent, all is silence. The silence of not just the absence of an answer, but the absence of the question itself. Muted, a picture, frozen in gesture. What have we given, each isolated in his own silent wood? An email, a home movie, an abandoned address, an old apartment, a neglected grave, a ghost. I write this, by the way, uh, only two months after first using email and having never lived in an apartment. Oh, I ran a madman, shaking flowers at shadows and my fist at a rolling mist throwing my empty screams like dice down weeping alleyways. My car is almost out of gas now. My books have been faded long since. The music no longer touches me, no longer makes me cry or laugh or remember a certain day. The candles are down to their last breath now. The stars are almost depleted now, drained of light. There, there, the final wind there now, blowing across the sky now. God walking in the cool of the evening, extinguishing each star as he passes, creating the new flood, the last flood, the flood of darkness, the great eternal blanket over all the land, the final bedtime story, for the last time someone saying, turn off the lights now, the choir's done now, we've done all we can now, just find a safe place please now, we'll wake you when we get there, when we start all over again. Pray for us now at the hour of our undoing. Pray for us now and at the hour of our undoing. Refer to the 23rd Psalm and all will be all right. Oh, now I lay me down to sleep beside the still waters and the blasted pasture. And if I should die before I wake, and if I should die before the earth doth quake, I pray someone to please my body take and burn it in a secret ceremony. And I ask also only that you bear my earned remains safely through the throng of foes, through the bustled, exhausted chaos, through the valley of the shadow of death, be my comfort, whisper to me, talk to me, speak to me, reassure me, and bury me beneath the yew tree. And blossoming from my dust, I do but hold for you in trust to teach me how, to teach them how. Oh, what is this? You come at me with arms, and throw me against the sweating alley wall. And what are those? Stones in your hands? You've come to silence me. Well, let me at least spread my arms like so. Let me at least eat my words like I've been told. Son of man, swallow that parchment, and give me that last lick of liquor to wash it all down. And now, yes, come crown me with your rabid fingernails. 
Throw your anger at my face, batter me with your insecurity, toss your legs in my general direction, anoint my head with your crimson saliva, paint my face with your fists, make my chest a watercolor with those rocks, my breast and belly your purple mountain majesty, and make a bountiful dinner out of me, carve something respectable out of me, and prepare me on a table in the presence of mine enemies. Oh, but don't even bother bringing my blindfolded head in on a platter. Don't even bother pondering my eyes amid your hollow chatter. For so long as I am an object, a prophet, a name, insane, so long as I am a feast to fulfill your comfort, an annoyance in your eyes easily blinked away, a dark ripple in your shining sea, a black fly in your blind afternoon tea, as long as I am underestimated and dismissed, what I see will never cease and what you are will never change. So yes, what should I resent? Do what you will. The time has come. Consume, submerge. I don't remember what it was to feel that much anger towards the world, but I must have. And that could possibly also be where the where the stubbornness came from, um, all tied in really with with the belief that simple simple sincerity should mean something and should garner someone at least uh, enough for one's daily bread. And even here, I seem to have realized that that would simply not be the case. Um, I was just so terribly lonely back then uh, and unable to talk with uh, most people. And I had uh, hardly any uh, background in religion or reading very widely. It was just starting about then uh, to fall back on. So that I'm sure that a lot of a lot of this and a lot of the stubbornness was both a reflection of what I believe to be not only my sincerity but my talent, but was also just a defense mechanism against everything that I saw and everything that I felt that I was being left out of. Uh, you can imagine um, poets out there or even people who aren't poets. For someone who's writing this at the age of 17 and a freshman at college, um, even if I had gone to a, a college where uh, creative writing was, uh, was stressed more, it's very hard to believe and I'm sure I felt it then immensely, the weight of it. Uh, it's very hard to believe there would have been that many people on campus to talk to about this. And I can see in the anger as well of being dismissed and underestimated. Um, the idea that, that I'm sure I gave this little book to uh, maybe uh, one or two of the English teachers on campus and that I either heard silence from them or just the sort of bewilderment or 
middle or 50-ish age jealousy of someone who's always wanted to write poetry and seeing a kid running along with uh, with this in it. I don't mean that it's perfect by any means, but um, it's far from that. But uh, reading it now, it still is something that I'm proud to have done. Um, hmm. One of the things I've tried to uh, do here on this podcast is to, now that I'm almost reaching episode 100, is to let silence come when it comes. And I think this is a good opportunity for that. So just let there be quiet. I think there's also someone who, there's a, there's a combination here, and then I think I will end it in just a moment. This is the first episode in, a, in another big experiment of whether I can just talk like this. I don't know if I can or will or if I'll even keep this up. Um, there's also something here of a of a young man who wants guidance and who wants uh, some advice, some assistance, but also someone who would probably not take that advice. Um, because as it happens, and I will end with this small story, as it happens, uh, I think it was right after this book was printed, uh, the historian friend that I mentioned, um, he of course got a copy of it right away and I walked into his office one day and he had scribbled all over it, highlighting lines and uh, at, just as I'm doing now, telling me to get rid of the crucified farmers, get rid of the, uh, get rid of the surrealism. Uh, you don't need to say that the waitress is like Medusa. You can just describe a sad waitress as being a sad waitress. Um, I think it was soon after that. Uh, when I dropped out of college uh, a few months later, and I, w I think I was actively seeking his advice, uh, someone who had spent his life writing and teaching. And and he had dealt with uh, depression and suicide attempts himself. Um, he knew that uh, one of the reasons I had dropped out was because of my own uh, sort of battles with depression and my own casual thinking about suicide back in high school uh, that never led to an attempt or anything like that. I don't want to I don't want to put myself in the company of someone who has actually been through that horrific situation um, in the flesh and rather than just in the thought. Um, knowing all of that and knowing that I had just dropped out, knowing that I probably wasn't teaching material, I probably wasn't someone like him who was also very practically minded. Uh, who could uh, turn himself into a professional historian and a teacher. I wasn't that type. 
and I still don't think that I am. Um, he saw who I was. He saw what I was capable of as a young man. And what he said to me was, what you need to do is get a backpack full of notebooks and a bus ticket. And you just need to go somewhere and keep going places and fill your notebooks. I'm pretty sure my response at the time, if I remember correctly, was, you know, what will I do for this? What will I do for that? Um, eat, where will I eat? What will I eat? And where will I sleep? Right? The basic, uh, the basic concerns. And for someone who believed that uh, at some point he wouldn't need to work anymore, the idea of washing dishes as I was passing through a town or picking up odd jobs so that I could write poetry at night or whatever it was on lunch break or something, which is what I ended up doing anyway, by the way. Um, the idea of doing that didn't strike me very well and I hemmed and hawed, and, uh, but when I look back on it now, that was probably the best piece of advice anyone could have given me then. And it's the best piece of advice that I give to as many young writers as I can. I don't come across very many of them, but those that I do, I tell them that story because it is a piece of advice that I never did follow. And when I did finally move away from home and I did get into that apartment, um, it was, a, it was how many years later? Four or five or six years later, um, I still had no real inkling of why I would want to move away from Ohio. I had no wider ambitions to travel. I had no desire to do anything except write. Even then, it was not about filling notebooks. It was about writing a long poem about the Civil War. It wasn't about learning about other random people I could find at a Waffle House, uh, even though that also happened too. Uh, rest, uh, the the freeway, highway restaurant and truck stop remained the place to go to people watch. Um, it took so many years to, what was the line that I had in here, um, where they're at the restaurant, um, trying desperately to distinguish themselves, to sever themselves from the indifferent mass of men they together constitute. There was a belief even then that uh, I couldn't possibly be the same as these other people at this restaurant, uh, leading lives of quiet desperation and all of that. And it took years and years and years to realize that the essence of what I mean when I talk about religion, the religion that I was trying to find, is a religion that believes in the holiness and sanctity of everyday life. Because if you demonize everyday life, then it's all about the afterlife, and it just poisons the present moment completely. And if there is an art that I'm looking for, if there's a mode of expression that I'm looking for, it is one that alleviates loneliness 
and encourages empathy. Um, I don't think art can do anything as well as it can possibly do those two things. And if art did anything, if reading books, if discovering music and discovering movies as a teenager did anything for me, it certainly alleviated my loneliness and taught me the beginnings of empathy. And I don't know that uh, maybe I wouldn't have found either, I wouldn't have realized either of those things um, sooner if I had taken my friend's advice, but alas, I did not. So that's all I have to say right now. I don't really know if this works. I assume that uh, someone will tell me if it doesn't. Um, maybe next time I'll have a few notes set aside uh, as a kind of guide to give this more structure. Maybe that's not what I need to do. But in any case, for the first time I'm seeing uh, the podcast platform is telling me 60 minutes is nearby and that is the maximum recorded time for segments. So I better end here. Thank you if you have indeed made it this far. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.